You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Amen. Thank you, Jonathan, for leading us. Church family, good to see you here this morning. If you have a Bible, I'd love to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 14 this week. Luke 14 there in your New Testament. Um, so grateful you're with us. If I, ha- if I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Shay Sumlin, one of the pastors here. And uh, as I've been introing each and every week, we are working our way through a seven-part series that we're calling The Seven Marks of a Disciple. And uh, uh, we are seeking to investigate what it really means to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. And the truth is, when we have a great commission like we've been given to, to go make disciples of all nations, when we've called to be disciples, this is in our mission state, statement at Northway Church to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ. If that is the mission that's over us, then we better know what we're making. And we better know that what we've been called to be. And there's lots of ways to study the idea of discipleship. We've chosen to do so in this series through the very words of Jesus. When Jesus himself says, if you do this, then you are a disciple of mine. If you are unwilling, then you cannot be. And what we've seen so far in this series is the first five marks, what it means, uh, those, what it means to be those who love Jesus as a mark of disciple, who abide in his word, who deny ourselves, who daily pick up our cross and who follow him. And we've looked at each one of those things. And what's interesting in Luke chapter 14, we're actually gonna get a summary of most of those marks that we've covered so far right in one place. Notice starting in verse 25, of Luke 14, great crowds were accompanying Jesus. And he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, then he cannot be my disciple. We looked at what that meant in the first week of this series, to have a supreme and incomparable love of Jesus Christ that rivals all other loves. And that's the first mark we looked at. Then in verse 27, Jesus immediately says, whoever does not bear his own cross, and come after me, cannot be my disciple. And that is mark number four, mark number five that we looked at in this series right there in that verse. And then in verses 28 through 32, Jesus gives a little discourse similar to what we covered last week on what it means to consider the cost before we follow him, that we really assess what we're being invited into, yes, and what it is that may cost us along the way so we can make a calculable um, assessment in our following after Jesus that proves it's worth anything that we may give up. And we talked about this throughout the series that Jesus never bids us to let go of something greater in exchange for something lesser. That's not how this works. Jesus is inviting us to let go of the things of this world so that we can find life and life everlasting in him. He is our greatest gain, no matter what it may cost us in this life. The gain outweighs the loss. Paul said, for I consider these present sufferings aren't even worthy to be compared to the future glory that's coming for us. And so we've looked at that throughout. And what you really begin to sense in a lot of these marks that we covered is the central theme of surrender, of of laying down certain things in exchange for something greater laying down our lesser loves so that we can experience the greatest love that could ever be given in Jesus Christ. 
laying down other lesser voices so that we can abide in the one voice that matters more than any other voice that bears fruit when we abide in him. Uh, Laying down even our own will for our life in exchange for the will that God has for us so that his will can be perfected through us for our good and his glory. Laying down even our old self of self-righteousness through the cross so that the new us can live now in Jesus's resurrection so that we can follow after him and laying down even our, our, our comforts and our concerns and our, even some of our companions of this world so that we can follow Jesus radically and unhindered. It's a theme of surrender. And if the essence of being a disciple of Jesus Christ involves a life of surrender in order to fully come after Jesus Christ and experience the fullness of life that's in him, I want you to notice in verse 33, one other surrender that we have yet to address in this series that can become a very big obstacle, if not heated, in our following Jesus. Jesus says in verse 33, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, I think the New American Standard Version translates it even more accurately, any one of you who will not go give up all of our own possessions cannot be a disciple. You go, whoa, okay, here we are. The possessions talk, it's coming. And so what in the world does this mean? Before we address what this means and doesn't mean here, we need to understand that Jesus knows that of all the things that can come in and distract us and even choke out our allegiance to him as a disciple of his, maybe for some of us, especially in the West, more than any other, is a love of earthly treasures, of possessions in our lives. And before we go there, I want you to notice the mini analogy that Jesus goes right into. A lot of us see this as disconnected, but it is totally connected. In verse 34 and 35, Jesus says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or even the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, why that little mini metaphorical discourse right there on salt, right after he says, if you don't lay down everything that you own, you can't be my disciple. It's an interesting metaphor, salt. One, because salt was a commodity in the first century. It was an earthly treasure, had many, many benefits and was used commercially. But even more important is Jesus actually used salt as a metaphor in Matthew chapter five to describe followers of his. When he said, you and I, we're to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. Like there is to be a distinct flavor and preservative in us that makes the whole world take notice based on who we're following in Jesus. And what's interesting though, is the only thing says, if salt loses its saltiness, how do you, how does salt lose saltiness? It's not like salt has saltiness. They can be lost. Salt is salt. It's its, it's whole identity and its component there. It is salt. So How does that happen? What you see is the only way that salt cannot be salty 
is if something on the outside comes in and poisons it and corrupts it and it loses its saltiness, both in the element of salt as well as the metaphor of a follower of Christ. This is how Jesus feels about an over-torquing of possessions in our life. One of the common things that can come in from the outside and corrupt and even choke out our following of Jesus is a love of possessions, a love of the gifts over the giver. And do you know, even atheists understand the entanglement of possessions. Bertrand Russell, a British philosopher and devout atheist, he was a polymath, which means that he was intellectually knowledgeable in a variety of subjects. He said this, it is a preoccupation with possessions more than anything else that prevents men from living freely and nobly. It can trip you up if you're not careful. And so Jesus tells us here, if you're not willing to give up all your possessions in order to follow him, then you can't be a disciple. Now, question, what in the world does that mean? Is Jesus being literal right here? If you and I don't start holding some garage sales ASAP, we are not gonna be able to follow him. If you and I don't start living like college students here pretty soon off cinder blocks and ramen, then we are not gonna be able to follow him. Is this what Jesus is saying here? Literally. Let me help us a little bit and I think understanding what's going on in the Greek language right here, that's gonna help us understand what Jesus is getting at. Let me nerd for just a moment, if you will. In the English language, if I were to have the same words in a sentence, but switch the words, we would have something different. If I said the ball hit the boy and then switched out and said the boy hit the ball, those are two different things. You change those words don't change any other words in the sentence, just move them to different places and you've changed the meaning of the sentence. In Greek, you have what's known as a morphological syntax, which means that you can actually switch words and it doesn't change the sentence. It changes the emphasis of what you're trying to communicate. And in the Greek, as the New American Standard translates it, when he says, unless you give up all of your own possessions, or here in the ESV, renounce all that you have. That word have and the word own in the Greek is in what's called the first primary position. It was moved up to the front. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is that it is, it is not so much about the possessions that you own, it's about the possessions that own you. That's what Jesus is getting at right here unless you are willing to relinquish your rights to what it is God owns that now is owning you, you will be inhibited from following me as a disciple. Now, he doesn't get at it here, but Jesus illustrates this through an incredible example just a few chapters later. Look over at Luke 18 with me here. Luke 18, you are going to have what is known as the story of the rich young ruler. And the context leading into it, the, Jesus is going to pick up here in, in verse 18 of Luke chapter 18, but it's in verse 15, 16, and 17 that we have a context. 
Jesus was teaching and, and doing his ministry there. And in verse 15, people were bringing the children to him that he would heal them, touch them. And he would come and the disciples, when they saw the children coming to him, they're like, get these kids out of here. Block them out. They're bothering Jesus. And Jesus calls a time out there in verse 16 and says, no, 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 no. Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And then Jesus says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And it's interesting here, Jesus is saying that the way to salvation is to come to Jesus unhindered like a child, with childlike faith. When children came to Jesus at that young age, they didn't come with pretense, they didn't come with condition. It wasn't, you better do this for, they just came with surrendered trust. Nothing hindered them. You watch young children today, full of no shame whatsoever. It's only as we age up, we start feeling shame and we're not willing to do the things so boldly in public that we did once as a kid. And this is what Jesus is saying. If you wanna enter into heaven, you're gonna have to come abandoned, surrendered from all that and come and cling to me. And yet in verses 18 through 23, there's gonna be a guy in the crowd there. Well, he's known as a ruler right now. He had some, some sense of Jewish authority. And he kind of stands up and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You're talking about receiving salvation, entering the kingdom. What do I need to do to do that good teacher? And Jesus is gonna use this guy as an illustration of what it is in our adult lives that tends to hinder us from coming to Jesus as a disciple. Now, what's interesting is he calls him good teacher. And Jesus has to deal with that first. In verse 19, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. So are you confessing that I am God? Because if all I am to you is just a good teacher, a good master rabbi, if that's all I am, then yeah, you're never gonna find salvation. But if you view me as God, then you understand why I'm here. So let's get that straight. Who is Jesus? But then he, he goes to an issue here, okay? So you wanna know how to inherit eternal life. Um, Jesus starts quoting the law to him. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, et cetera, et cetera. And this guy, what should he have done right here? If, if the way into heaven is simply to obey the 10 commandments, what should be this guy's response to Jesus if this is what it is right now? He should fall on his face and go, I'm a dead man walking. I'm a dead man walking. Because what Jesus, this is what Jesus does so well in the Sermon on the Mount, he gets to the heart of what the issue is. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. And many folks in there may have gone, yeah, I've never done that, never cheated on my spouse, have it, check. And Jesus goes, but I tell you, if you've even looked at someone lustfully, you've committed adultery. Oh yeah, I've committed adultery. We've all have done. Then he goes, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I tell you, if you even hate your brother or sister, you've murdered them in your heart. And you can see how it just pierces through. It's not the external behavior. It gets down to what's inside. And that's what Jesus is after. And that's what he's after with this guy. List the commandments. This guy should have fallen on his face and said, I've broken every one of them. 
but he doesn't. He says in verse 20, 21, all these I have kept from my youth. Now, what, should Je- what Jesus could have done right here? He could have slayed him. He could have gone Sermon on the Mount on him right now. Oh, really? Okay, you've done every one of these commandments. Let's start. Have you ever lied? You're a liar. Have you ever lusted? You're an adulterer. Have you ever been angry at somebody? You're a murderer. He could have just slayed him right there. End of story. But Jesus knows what's really hindering this guy. It's not those commandments. It's something else. And so Jesus asks him something. He asks him to do something in verse 22 that isn't a 10 commandment. It's not even a commandment but Jesus is gonna to get to the heart. When Jesus heard them, he said, okay, great. I'm gonna, let's play with you, act like you've done all the 10 commandments. It's just one thing you lack. I want you to go and sell all that you have. And I want you to distribute it to the poor and then you will have treasure in heaven and you can come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad because he was extremely rich. And so the story indicates he just hangs his head down and walks away. Why? Because Jesus knows at the end of the day, it is not about the possessions you own. It is about the possessions that own you. There is an idol in your heart that is preventing you from following me. There are things in your life that you cannot lay down and let go of. They have control of you and they are hindering you from following me. And so right there, Um, Jesus speaks to the rich young ruler and in many ways he's speaking to us. Remember what Paul told Timothy. Timothy wrote to Timothy, uh, who was a pastor in Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the wealthiest cities in the Roman Empire. Even when you go there today, we're gonna go there this summer, if anybody wants to come along, Northway trip, we'll be standing in the ruins uncovered in Ephesus of some of the wealthiest homes in the entire Roman Empire, the most decadent homes that are there. And the church is gathered there. And Paul writes to Timothy, the pastor there, and he says this, I want you to know something, 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, it's really important you understand what he didn't say in that verse. This is one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible. I'm listening to a country song in the car yesterday that's singing this out of context over and over and over. He does not say that money is the root of all evil. He says what? The love of money is the root of all sorts of evils. The issue is not the possessions you own. It is the possessions that own you. It is your love and my love for these things that will actually hinder us from following Jesus. John said the same thing about a love of treasures in 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him. It's that, it's that love of money and possessions. It's the obsession with the things of this world that takes up room in our hearts where Christ desires to be enthroned. And it crowds that out. And 
Jesus said in Matthew chapter six, verse 24, no one can serve two masters. And the context here is God and money. Um, you can't serve two masters. Why? Because he says, for either you will hate the one and you'll love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and you'll despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Very important on this verse too. He did not say you cannot have God and wealth. He said, you can't serve God and wealth. You cannot, you cannot try to make both of them your master because you're going to love the one and hate the other. And the one you're going to end up loving is the lesser of the two, which is wealth and possessions. Jesus is saying here, if you want to follow me, if you want to be, if you want me to be Lord of your life, you're going to have to let go of the materialistic ideologies that are holding your heart captive. Otherwise, you're going to be divided. So the question is, if this is what Jesus is getting at, that sub-level idolatry in the heart of enslavement to things and possessions and wealth, what do we do? What, what can we do to ensure that what happened with that rich young ruler doesn't happen to us? That when given a choice of following Jesus or following the things of this world, we're gonna take Jesus, even if it means surrender of those things. What does that look like? Three things I wanna put before you here this morning. A biblical understanding of ownership, a biblical understanding of stewardship, and a biblical understanding of generosity that I think is going to help us in this mark of a disciple. First, let's start with biblical ownership. We've got to get our theology straight about who owns what in this world. And I'm going to give you a pro tip early on hint. It's not us. Psalm 50 verses 10 and 12, for every beast of the field of the forest is mine. I own the cattle on a thousand hills, which by the way, livestock was the currency in many ways in the earlier centuries. And God says, I own it all. And he goes on to say, for the world is mine and all that is within it. I own everything. The things that you think you own, they aren't actually yours. They're God's. And even we pop up even higher a little bit, Colossians 1, 15 and 16, God tells us Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. Listen to this. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth. He created everything, whether visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, not some things, all things were created not only through Jesus, but for Jesus. He owns everything. He is the one sovereignly enthroned. Biblical ownership is his, not ours. Even our own lives fall under that category. He owns everything. Now, disclaimer here, it doesn't mean that he hasn't created these things so that we can't enjoy them. No, on the contrary, he has. Go read Ecclesiastes. Drill down in chapter five, absolutely. God as a loving father has given us common graces in some of the things of this world for us to enjoy, but to enjoy as much as they will take our hearts to him. In the food we eat, in the possessions we have, that they would lead us to greater worship of him, not in the thing itself, that our love would go to the giver, not the gifts, but they are to be enjoyed. However, the mandate though, under the Great Commission is these things would be stewarded for his glory while we have them. So now we get into the area of biblical stewardship. So let's talk about this for just a moment. 
Um, Luke 19 and Matthew 25 speak to this in parables. Parable of the minas, the parable of the talents. Jesus conveys the idea of a nobleman who had a lot of wealth, left it with some stewards, and he went off to a distant country. And while he was gone, he asked them to take his resources and go invest them and steward them so that a gain would be made, a return on investment, so that when he comes back, he'll see that return. And that is talking about us, stewards. Those who are stewards, one who manages the assets of somebody else for their purposes, not for our own. And so he has left us here to steward these resources, to use them to magnify his kingdom and to bless others in kingdom imperatives that, the, that what is true of heaven would be true on earth. Now, likewise, in 1 Timothy uh, 6, Paul writing to these wealthy people there in Ephesus again, he says this, and listen to how he commands them. First of all, he says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Don't set your hope on wealth. Don't set your hope on material possessions because anybody who's been on this earth long enough knows that our wealth and our possessions can be taken away in an instant. They're uncertain. The one thing that is constant and never changes is God. Rest your hopes on him. Likewise, but he goes on to say here, this God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So enjoyment is part of it. But look at verse 18 in this. But I want you, Timothy, to instruct the rich in that town. Listen, in the church, with those treasures, they are to do good with them, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share. I want you to steward these things in such a way that they would bless others, not just be hoarded to yourself. Thus, when you do so, you are storing up treasure for yourself as a good foundation for the future. There's irony in that statement. As you give away wealth and possessions, you're actually storing up treasures, but it's a different kind of treasure. It's an eternal one, not just a material one. One that will transition over to the kingdom as we invest for God's glory and his kingdom purposes. So when you do that, that they may truly find by giving away and being generous that they will take hold of that which is truly life. Life isn't found in hoarding. Life is found in giving away and keeping with God and his image. So the question is, are we good stewards? Are you and I, wherever you're at, a lot of us have a little, a lot of us have a lot, some in between. It doesn't matter how much you have. It matters what you do with what you do have. Are we good stewards? If somebody were to look, the old adage, somebody were to look, peer into our bank accounts or our calendars and look at the last year, would they be able to tell just by the evidence of that, which master we serve, which rabbi we follow, which kingdom we're investing in? Now, listen, hear me straight on this. This is not a drive-by guilting today. I know it. I'm proud of you just for showing up after I told you last week we're going here. I'm proud of you for just being here. The fact is, this is not a drive-by guilting. Northway Church we are not gonna be handing around card readers and direct deposits to your account here this afternoon. We, if anything, we err on the other side because like you, so many of us have had those baggage stories with church and we're, we're giving is a third of every message and everything's a capital campaign and over and over. I get all that. 
I mean, my goodness, we have one offering box that I think is hidden back there. It looks like it's behind the curtain. Go find it. Um, <laughs> this is not a drive-by guilting. What this is, is us as followers of Jesus really doing some healthy introspection and investigation on our formation as disciples. And this is part of our formation. This is part of our discipleship, is learning to steward what God has entrusted to us, whether a lot or a little, for his glory. Now, the third piece in this category is not just a theology of ownership and stewardship, but how we demonstrate generosity how we get into the motive of what drives generosity, where we decide as a church and as followers of Jesus to become givers, not takers. Now, a lot of us, when we think about money in the church, we think about being generous or whatever. A lot of us, our minds tend to go, if you've been around church for a while, the tithe, tithes and offerings of the church. And the word tithe means 10%. And so kind of use that as a benchmark. But what's interesting so you go back to the Old Testament, it was actually way more than 10%. Certainly you started with what was known as the Lord's tithe in the Old Testament, which was 10% of all your produce and animals that were given to the Levitical priesthood as an offering unto God. 10% right off the top. But then there was a festival tithe, an additional 10% that was given once a year as a celebration of Israel's conquering the promised land. And then on top of that, there was a poor tithe that was expected of God's people, an additional 10% that was given every three years for those who are in need. So it was never really 10%. If you do the math, that's 23.3% for every follower of God in that day. And that's on top of additional temple taxes and whatever country was ruling over you, mandating taxes like Rome. And so on a bad day, it could get very easy to view giving as that of compulsion. I'm forced to give, I'm asked to give, I'm guilted to give. Something changes radically in the New Testament. For starters, there's not a single command on what or how much to give in the entire New Testament. The only command is in your giving, you would do so cheerfully without compulsion. And what happens is you begin to see when you start turning the pages of the Gospels and the book of Acts and the New Testament, you watch the church go wild in generosity, far beyond anything you could ever see, even in the Old Testament in that. Acts chapter two, verse 44 and 45, all those who believed were together. They had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to the proceeds to anyone as they had need. Literally in Acts chapter four, people are selling land, getting the equity and, and, the, and the purchase off that sale and throwing it at the feet of the apostles going, wherever there's need, give it away. He's like, this is crazy giving. And there's no, there's no 10% put on that. It's just sacrificial generosity. And then even in stories like you see with the Macedonian church in 2 Corinthians 8, listen to this. Paul says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. He's writing to the church at Corinth about the church that was just north of them in northern Greece and Macedonia. The churches in Macedonia. For I testify that in a severe test of affliction in their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, it has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave not only according to their means, but even beyond 
their means, as I can testify. And he says, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this is not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. This is an interesting story. You you have the Macedonian church in Northern Greece who's getting their face kicked in in persecution, who have had literally been stripped away. They've been kicked out of social norms. They have lost homes. They have lost possessions. They have lost wealth and have been displaced in their persecution. They have hardly anything. And then they find out third hand that Jerusalem, where this whole thing started and where the gospel went out of to reach them, is walking through an amazing famine right now. And as the church is being hindered there, and this Macedonian church begs the apostles, how can we give? And he says, not only according to what they had beyond what they even had. You go, what in the world drives that kind of generosity? There wasn't any drive-by guiltings there. They wanted to. What motivates you to give like that? The answer is in the next few verses. Listen to this. Three times you're gonna hear it. Accordingly, we urge Titus, as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and in speech and in knowledge and earnestness, your love and in our love for you, see to it that you excel in this act of grace as well. I say again, this not as a command, it's in a drive-by guilting here. This is proving by the earnestness of others that your love is genuine. Why? Because you know the grace of our Lord, Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor so that by his poverty, you might become rich. Do you know what drove generosity in the early church? It wasn't guiltings, it wasn't law, it wasn't compulsion, it wasn't out of the motivation of what they could get from giving. They were driven by grace. Specifically, they were driven by the grace of their Lord Jesus Christ. Those of us who were enslaved in our sin without hope and God so loved the world, he gave his only son. I I don't know about you, I wanna keep my kids. I don't really wanna give them up. He gave his only son to go give his life on a cross for us so that through his death, through his poverty of emptying himself, you and I would be the benefits of his amazing generosity and become rich in Christ. Sacrificial generosity is fueled by grace. The biblical motivation for generosity is grace giving. And the model in the church is that it usually, that generosity starts in the church here with one another and then moves outward to our neighbors, those in need in the community and to the nations, specifically that the gospel might go forth. I gotta tell you, one of the things I love about Northway Church is its generosity in every test of affliction we've had. And I'm not even just talking about material generosity. I'm talking about generosity in time and service and and talents along with material treasures. It's been, blows my mind how generous this church is. And we're not, our average age is 27. It's not like we got a ton of gray-haired retirement folks who sold their oil companies and now are 
giving million dollar tithes here to Northway Church. We're living more off pennies than anything around here. And it's a lot of pennies that are coming in because people believe in the mission of the church and they not just so we can hoard it all, but we can go give that away and we can steward the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's been beautiful. But I gotta tell you, there is a struggle that we're all and a temptation that we can have. Sometimes it's not true in every church. Sometimes the world outpaces us in generosity. Uh, for instance, 2014 US News World Report, I think I've shared this before, had a stat that in one year in the United States, over $10 billion was given to college institutions from alumni. Like people who didn't have to do that, but wanted so desperately to give money back to the institution that they graduated from. Now that's crazy to me because North Texas emails me all the time and I'm like, nope, you got enough, you got enough. <laughs> Clearly not everybody thinks that way. And in fact, Princeton and Florida led the way with 63% of alumni Think about that. 63% of anybody who's ever graduated from Princeton or Florida gave back that year. There's a reason they call it your alma mater because it means foster mother. This is the institution who fostered me as a mom when I needed help. They poured into me. They invested into me. I am who I am because of their investment. So how could I not give back? They want to give back to mama. And I go, how much more is eternal as the church? Florida and Princeton shouldn't be outpacing the church in generosity. Paul said in Galatians 5, we are to share all good things with those who have taught us. That's why Macedonia wanted to give to Jerusalem because Jerusalem invested in them. Started in the church. Romans 15, if we have shared in the spiritual, then we are indebted to minister back in the physical. It's giving back to mama. It's making sure that this thing doesn't end on us that we continue to reinvest so the gospel may go out through the local church. And so generosity, we should outpace anybody else because we know the grace that our Lord has given us. Amen? Now, having said that, understand our struggle in this regard, it's not a pathway issue. It's not because we don't have accessibility to platforms to give or to know the needs that are around us or the needs in the church. It's not a pathway issue. It's a discipleship issue. It's a heart issue. It's an idolatry issue in our hearts that has to be dealt with. Now, one thing I'll say here before we land the plane, beware of one of the greatest generosity killers that's out there, and it's debt. And I know this from experience. Debt will enslave you and hinder your generosity, maybe sometimes like none other. Tony Evans said it best when it comes to finances, there are the haves and there are the have-nots and there are the have not paid for what they have. And that's the kind of debt. We're not talking, there's some loans and things that are good and wise. Investing in a mortgage, I think is good and wise, but there are some loans that you know and I know are just foolish. They're vanity. In fact, one of the best definitions of debt that I've seen is almost all unwise debt is vanity without patience. It's selfishly loving something so much and at the same time not being content enough on the Lord to wait. The, the Proverbs tell us the borrower becomes the slave to the lender. He who loves pleasure will become poor. 
And I know that from experience. I spent the first half of my marriage enslaved in credit card debt, student loan debt, it was buried in it. We couldn't do anything. We were just, my wife and I went on a Valentine's date last night and we're just remembering when we were, literally our date was going up to like Walgreens and each having a dollar to go pick out something that night for each other. We know what broke is because we had no money because we were paying it all to a thousand percent interest on a credit card that we were doing at the time. I shared before, I took a girl to New Orleans on a fraternity formal, went for two days, dropped about $1,500, $2,000 on her on a credit card, and then broke up the day we got back. She went on free and I was enslaved to 185,000% interest for the next several years that compounded and multiplied. And the irony of ironies is I then met my wife, who was my sugar mama in the first few years of marriage, paying off my ex-girlfriend's debt. Put that in your embarrassment filter, all right? My gosh, debt is awful. It enslaves you. And there yet at the same time, I can tell you there is no great liberator than 2009 when I paid my last penny to all debt and didn't have a single debt of any kind. Hallelujah, freedom is glorious in that regard. There is nothing more liberating outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ than being unshackled by the things of this world so that when the Holy Spirit moves in you, you can go give that stuff away. And so, man, that, that's one of the beauties in this. Where, where can I take us here as we land this plane? Four things that I'd put as next steps for us. Number one, slay the idol of the heart. Do some introspection. Don't just assess what you own. Spend some time ass- assessing what owns you. That's gonna take a lot of humility. It's gonna take a lot of self-awareness. And it's gonna take a lot of repentance to be able to really get in there and go, what is it? that if I had to give it away today, I don't think I could. And it's evidence because it's shackled me. I gotta have it. And and break up with those thieves in your heart and lay that before the Lord. And then let's begin, secondly, to think about how we can better steward the assets we've been given. I've said it before, it's not about how much you have, it's what you do with what you do have. Doesn't matter that you're rich or poor. The truth is, do you know what all statistics say? They usually say that the more money you make, the the less you tend to give. So it really isn't about, oh, if I can just get to this financial point, then I can give. It starts in the heart with the little I have. How generous am I? And begin to steward it. Maybe for some, that means meeting with a financial counselor. Go Dave Ramsey on that thing if you got to. Just find some wisdom around you that can help you begin to steward your assets for the sake of the kingdom. And along with that, thirdly, begin to pray earnestly. Pray, not my will, O Lord, but your will, O God. And ask the Holy Spirit, who loves to guide, to lead us in. First, to give us clarity about our treasures, and then to give us courage. To walk by faith and not fear. And be sacrificially generous with what we have to steward God's glory and his kingdom. And then the last thing is in keeping with that, proactively look for opportunities to give graciously and give radically for kingdom purposes. We've got a guy in our church, love this, wealthy on the wealthier end of the spectrum and told me one time, he said, Shay, I've got more money than I know what to do with. And I was like, tell me more. I've never understood that. So (laughs) I'd love to learn what that means. And he goes, and it used to annoy me, people asking for money, this, that, and he goes, I realized this is what God made me to do. He made me to be wealthy 
so that I could be a venture capitalist for the kingdom of God. I went, wow, I want that title. I like that title. <laughs> venture capitalist for the kingdom of God. And he just looks for opportunities to sow into eternal investments. Man, what if we all took that on? Church family, man, may this form us as a disciple of Jesus Christ. May we be marked as a people by a radical generosity that is fueled by the grace that was given to us through Jesus Christ, that would move giving, not as a have to, but free us to a get to. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Holy Spirit-wrought conviction that I know this is, not only on everyone here, but certainly on my own heart. God, I want to be a giver. I want to be a giver like you are a giver. And so, Lord, I pray you would just help us, help us to see this through biblical lenses. Help us to absorb the grace that we have received vertically that it really would transform us to go give it away horizontally. Pray, God, that you'd help us to be good stewards of the treasures you've entrusted to us. And Father, you would give us a heart and a motivation to take those assets and go invest them into purses that don't have holes in them, which is your kingdom. In the short time that we have left, certainly for your glory and our good, in the sake of the gospel, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.